so uh, about 15 years ago, I led a spring break trip with a handful of students to Stone Harbor, New Jersey. I used to work with college students at the University of Pittsburgh, and the purpose of this trip was to be a, a discipleship trip. We were meant to get together, and, and, and it was focused on kind of our own spiritual formation, spiritual growth, and uh, over the course of that week, we practiced all 12 of the spiritual disciplines that were listed in Richard Foster's book, um, Celebration of Discipline. It's the, if you had been tuning in or had come to service at the beginning of the year, January, February, March, th- these are um, the same spiritual disciplines that we went through. Um, and, you know, the, the first Sunday we were there, we went to a church there. Uh, it was a more traditional, more liturgical church, and it was interesting. During their worship, the chorus did a, or the choir, excuse me, did a rendition of Dem Bones. You might be familiar with it. It was a classic spiritual, first recorded in 1928. The song describes bones being connected, constructing a skeleton, you know, the foot bone connected to the heel bone and so on and so forth, all the way to, the, to that head bone. And for whatever reason, I just, I have this very distinct memory. I, I forget a lot about the rest of that trip, but I have this memory that uh, the choir, as they're singing, they used like a slide whistle for one of the bone connections. I don't know which one. I don't really know precisely why, but the students that I was with, they like thought it was the funniest thing ever. Every time the slide whistle plays, they were just cracking up. But chances are, you know, you've, you've heard the song somewhere before, maybe you know that it's based off of Ezekiel's vision of these dry bones found in Ezekiel 37. You're going to see some themes even in just what we just sang uh, in, in that song, Rattle. As a result, this passage might be the, the most familiar you are with the book of Ezekiel. You may not have known of some of the visions that we've been talking about, but you've probably heard of this passage this mor- that we're going to talk about this morning. In all likelihood, you're probably actually more familiar with the song than the passage. And so when we've been shaped by a cultural artifact, something like the spiritual dem bones, we have a tendency to bring certain presuppositions to the text, preconceptions. Do we really know what this passage is about? And so I want to invite us to take a look at it together to see if we can place that passage in its original context, uh, but also bring some take-homes for it for us as well. So if you want to open your Bibles or Bible apps or however you want to follow along, uh, we're going to look at the first half of Ezekiel chapter 37. Now just a little plug once again for the uh, daily Bible reading plan that we put together. Uh, It just so happened, this was not planned, uh, but it just so happened that if you are following along and you haven't read yet, well we're going to read the first half of today's chapter anyway. So you only have the second half to read if you're following along with that. So we'll, we'll read this passage in smaller chunks. Hopefully you've had a chance to turn there. Um, let me set the stage for the vision. So in the text, this comes, if you, if you opened up a Bible, um, a, 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 it's harder with apps because you don't see uh, usually the chapter that's before it, but you, if you look up a verse or before a verse, you see that it comes immediately after where we left off last week. If you weren't here, Ezekiel 36 ends with this promise of restoration, promises of restoration, of flourishing. One of the comparisons that is made in there at the end of Ezekiel 36 is that their restored state would be reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. But instead of being in a garden with one Adam, the text says it would be filled with cities full of a multitude of Adams, of people. What we're going to see right out of the gate in our passage is that this morning, 
Ezekiel 37 is in direct contrast with that vision. Last week ended with a description of life, but this, morning pa- this morning's passage begins with death. So if you'd follow along as I read, it's Ezekiel 37, 1 to 6, we'll start with. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So to start by unpacking this verse, verse 1 begins with this descriptor, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And this is language that we have seen, if you've been following along with some of these other visions, it links it in the, 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 the series of the, these divine visions that Ezekiel has been given. And this valley that Ezekiel has been set in is quite literally death valley. Now just to foreshadow a little bit, you know, we saw, the, I pointed out the contrast of the passage just before that it ends in life and this begins in death, but this kind of valley also contrasts what we're going to see next week. Uh, We're going to see in in Ezekiel chapter 47, excuse me, uh, it it describes the very high mountain of God. Uh, You know, Mason said at the end of our worship set that, you know, the the story's not over. There's more to come. God is bringing restoration and, and its fullness and We see that promise in in Ezekiel 47, and so there's this contrast where he's currently in the valley, but there will be, just again, foreshadowing for next week, this this, uh, blessing of this very high mountain. So not only life and death, but also low point and high point. So in this valley of death, verse 2 says that Ezekiel is led back and forth among the bones. It's signifying this exhaustive investigation of the terrain. As he is there searching, there is not a flicker of life. This is an image of desolation. There were a multitude of bones and they were very dry. This is not a near-death experience. These aren't folks who have fainted in the heat of the desert and they just need a little water to be revived. This is the image of those whose hearts have stopped. Their bodies have decomposed. They, they have not been honored any sort of burial, but the remains have just been left out under the hot and baking sun. Met with this image of despair, God asks this question, can these bones live? Now, given the context, it feels like the answer to that question is no. There, there were plenty of examples in the Old Testament of corpses being brought back to life. For example, in the book of First and Second Kings, there are stories of both Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead. In fact, it was in the bridge of the song we just sang that after Elisha's death, there was a man who had died and he was kind of casually tossed into the grave of Elisha. 
he landed on Elisha's bones and comes back to life. But our valley isn't a valley of corpses, but of scattered bones and very dry ones at that. They have been dead a long time. And so it feels like, if we were an original reader, an original hearer of this, it feels like confirmation that Israel has been utterly destroyed for their sins. This is exactly what Ezekiel feared, what he cried out back in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 13, that this valley of despair feels like the end of the story. But in spite of the obvious answer to God's question, Ezekiel won't admit it. He turns it back to God. He says, O Lord, only you know. It's clear that it's in God's power to bring these dead bones to life. That that was never a question. It isn't a matter of truly can these bones live, but is God willing? Nothing is too big, nothing is too difficult for God, but why would he raise disobedient, rebellious people in the house of Israel? They've been punished for their sins. sins. Why would God bring them back? Yes, God can, but will he? Now, God, in his mercy, as we see in the text, is willing. And this should give us hope that even in Death Valley, it too must be swallowed up in God's victory. We see God command Ezekiel to prophesy over the bones that it will be God's power, using Ezekiel as a conduit, to bring about this restoration, that these bones, they're not just going to come back as undead, you know, animated skeletons, but living flesh this breath, if you, if you look at verse 5, if you're reading the ESV, I know there's a little asterisk there, or not an asterisk, but a footnote there, right? That, that word for breath is the Hebrew word ruach, and in the entirety of our passage, uh, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, it's that same word is used 10 different times, and it's a really tricky word to translate. You've got to go by the context, because in Hebrew, it can be translated as breath, it can be translated as wind, it can be translated as spirit. And so what we see here is this dynamic that they will live, they will catch breath through an infusion of God's spirit in them. And then verse 6 ends the paragraph that God's addressing the bones, saying that after he has done this, once this is complete, they will finally acknowledge his lordship. So this is, this is God kind of, he, what he's promising Let's read the next section. This is it actually playing out before us. So this is Ezekiel 37, 7 to 10. Again, notice that wind, spirit, breath. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. Again, where they got the name of that song that we sang. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. So Ezekiel is, he's obedient to the Lord's command. 
power of God knits these dry and rattling bones together, clothing them in flesh and skin. But at the end of verse 8, it tells us that the work is incomplete. There's no breath in them. And we, we can read this and we zoom right past this, but I think to an original hearer, there's somewhat of a dramatic point, right? If Ezekiel was retelling this, I think he would have given one of those, you know, pregnant pauses. Because the work has started, but it's not complete. There's almost an implicit question, right? Like, has God's word failed? Are these bones just too dry to truly bring back to life? But then Ezekiel would have continued that God's not done. He commands Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind, right? That ruach, to the breath, to come from afar to bring life to the people. This scene is very reminiscent of what we see in Genesis 2 with the creation of Adam. Think about it. That's also a two-stage process. God forms the body, the form of Adam from the dust of the earth. Once that that form, that, that you know, habitation was, was uh, created, then he fills Adam's breath with lung. With, with, he, does, he fills Adam's lungs with breath. I'm getting my words all over the place. You know what I mean. He formed Adam's shape and then filled him with breath. That's what we just saw, right? These skeletons kind of form bodies, and then that second stage was the breath of God being filled in him. This actually parallels Ezekiel's experience that we've seen earlier in our series on two different occasions. Ezekiel sees the power, the glory of God, and he falls down like a dead man, it says. It is only by divine assistance of the Lord that he's able to be raised to his feet. And that's exactly what we see in verse 10. Right? These dry bones, they, they lived, they stood on their feet. This narrative is screaming a recreation, that that which would have been considered dead, that which would have been considered non-existent, is brought back to flourishing and life. The final section of our passage um, explains what it is that we've seen. And again, when you encounter songs like Dem Bones, they kind of leave some of the, the context of this out, of course. That's not what their point is. Following as I read. So this is Ezekiel 37, 11 to 14. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, I will raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So we've seen this theme of the spirit being infused for obedience sake, but we see this same parallel of the bones, that Kind of the the graves are raided and and the the forms are there and the spirit enters in that kind of two-part recreation. But here God defines what this vision means, that these dry bones are the house of Israel. Their, Their cry is that they are dead. They are helpless. They are hopeless without God. And it's only God who has the power to open their graves. Now, 
I'm sure there are plenty of arenas in our life where we attempt to wrest control. We, we think that we can control our own destinies. But any of us who have any sense know that death is beyond our limits. We don't have any control over death. We can only rely upon the power of God for life. This is the cry of the psalmist. Psalm 49, 14 through 15 describes kind of this, this tension. In, in Hebrew theology, just to kind of preface it for you, you may have heard this if you've been in church for a while. There's, they didn't really have a strong conception of heaven and hell the way that we do now, uh, but they had this place called Sheol, and Sheol was the holding place from the dead. It's where you went when you passed away. I think I would argue the righteous and unrighteous, but there's, there's some gray area in that. The psalmist says this about Sheol, Psalm 49, 14 to 15. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will raise me. You notice some of the same language that we've seen over the last few weeks in Ezekiel, right? Death is this shepherd, kind of having dominion, almost in a tyranny kind of way, contrasting what we've seen um, two weeks ago, I think it was, with the good shepherd, the shepherd leader that God would establish over his people. Right, Sheol was a place to be feared for the ungodly, but for those who truly trusted in the Lord, they knew that God's faithfulness meant that this would not be the end of their story. Now, I'm sure, you know, as we read this, it's a, somewhat of a self-explanatory passage for us, but what does it mean? How are we to understand this in its original context? I mean, we're separated by about 2,600 years from when Ezekiel prophesied this, when this vision was given to him to us. You know, as we've seen, as I pointed out in its original context, this passage was given to a people who had been displaced from their homeland. They were in a land that was not their own in despair, wondering, like, is, God, are you still for us? Or are we just to be abandoned? Are we just to be destroyed? And so in that context, this is about their restoration It's about the recreation of Israel after facing the judgment and wrath of God. It's a display of God's mercy, once again showing God's goodness, even though the judgment against them had been just. Something I've said a few times in in the midst of this series is that this story of Israel is important for us because the story of Israel, I believe, is our story as well. It parallels ours. Not that it's a one-to-one correspondence, not that it's, you know, um, an allegory in that way, but so often the way Israel responded is how we would respond if we were in the same situation and how we do respond in similar situations. And so here, this example of these dry bones devoid of life, I think it parallels our spiritual experience. Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 says this, well, I didn't quote it, but he says that we are dead. He tells us we are dead in our trespasses and sins that we used to walk. We are helpless. We are dead apart from the life-giving provision of God. Just as Ezekiel walked the field of bones, so too we dwelled in a graveyard surrounded by death, that we were, Paul says this, without hope and without God in the world. 
And so the question that comes from God is the same. Can these bones live? Can this place of death bring life? And I'm grateful for the stories of Israel because it gives me hope as I think about my own story, as I encounter this. Can God raise dead people to life? Is it within his power? Absolutely. He's the God of the universe, the Lord of creation. All the laws of science were his idea. There's not a tension between science and faith. They were his idea. They obey his will. It's not can God do this, but the million-dollar question is will God raise dead people, especially rebels like us, people who have thumbed our noses at God and said, God, I don't need you. I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Will he raise us to life? And, And praise the Lord that God has revealed his heart in answering that question with a resounding yes. Through the cross of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. He's given us new life. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And beyond that, as we saw in our passage, that God has placed his spirit within us. Just as he promised his spirit, he promised his breath in our passage to provide life. Just like that that presence of that Holy Spirit yields obedience in our lives. He's given us that wonderful gift. Romans 8, 14 to 16 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as heirs by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit reminds us that we are not dry bones, but that we are living, breathing, worshiping children of God. It's a gift that God gives us to connect us to him, to remind us so that we're not plagued by fear of I'm without hope. You know, one commentator linked this passage this way, and he said this. He said that spirit-filled Israel, that it was no longer governed. Because right, I, I mentioned this is about a recreation, a restoration of Israel. And he says that Israel was no longer governed by ethnic origins and circumcision, as the old Israel was but rather by faith in the cross of Christ. The Bible is clear that we have been adopted into this family. We have been, you know, if you have a tree, our our limbs of, uh, uh, as Gentiles, have been grafted onto that tree. We are spiritual, the, the spiritual descendants, the spiritual seed of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this new opportunity to life was set in motion of which we get to be included in. And it changed the course of history. C.S. Lewis, talking about the resurrection, said this. He said, quote, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement and rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the, quote, first fruits, the, quote, pioneer of life. Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of that first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. 
This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. This is what we sang. We have hope. I hear dry bones rattling. Open the graves. I know I'm coming out because of your resurrection power that was demonstrated in Jesus. That where there was death in Adam, there has come life through Christ. What has seemed impossible, right? This valley of dry bones devoid of life has turned into a vibrant army of the Lord. That's what verse 10 says, right? That he des- it describes these resurrected bodies as an exceedingly great army. Now, I know, it, you know, we, we live in this generation uh, that this isn't, I don't know, if I was writing this in our time, I don't know that I would be using this language personally of army. I, I think gone are the days in our culture where we regularly sing hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers because there's too much of a track record of ways you know, that Christianity has been militant and pushing and promoting itself. And so there, there are times where there's unease with this language, but this is how the Bible speaks of us as an army of the Lord. The difference is our army does not conduct warfare in the way that the nations around us do. Our goal is not to to win at any cost, but to live with the knowledge that God's already won. So how do we lean into that, living as if that were true? But God invites us to be a part of his movement of redemption. Where God has shown us grace and mercy, we are tasked with showing that same grace and mercy and love towards others. Salvation, the life that we have received, was not something to be hoarded, but it is for something. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, uh, often quoted in the church, kind of through the Protestant Reformation, it, it reminds us that we didn't do anything to obtain our salvation, right? That it's not by works so that none of us can boast purely by the grace of God. But what's often left off when we quote that passage is verse 10, which reminds us, it says this, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 often say, you know what, works can't get you salvation. None of us can earn it, but we don't want to go too far in the opposite direction and say, oh, what good are works? No, God says through, through Paul in Ephesians 2.5 that works are important, that, that God has called us to works. He's prepared these things in us. We are God's workmanship. Some translation, I think actually the, uh, the message, Eugene Peterson might translate it this way, that we are God's masterpiece. What does it mean to be a masterpiece for the good of the world? Our call is to be heralds of God's kingdom. If we have received life, let's again, just stretching our metaphor a little bit with Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel has received life. He's had this divine assistance, being able to stand in the presence of God. How are we too prophesying over the death that we see in our communities, in our schools, in our places of employment? How can we take lessons from Ezekiel and proclaim the Lord's provision, proclaim favor to these dry places that these dead bones would live? I would suggest we've all been in the valley of death. 
know, maybe you experience gun violence in your community. Maybe you go to school and you see classmates with eyes glazed over, wishing they were someone else as they fall behind and continue to fall through the cracks of the educational system. Perhaps you work for a company that has diminished the dignity of the customer for the almighty dollar. The point is, where, when we see these spaces, when we see places where we feel that are hopeless, we probably feel like Ezekiel did. How on earth is life supposed to come out of this? There's just death and decay. But it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, that those places, that which is dead, can be brought back to life and redeemed. So again, I say that God has powerfully and mercifully moved into our lives. He's raised us, raised our dry and weary bones for a reason. And so I, I, want, us, I want to invite us to think about what does it mean for us to partner with God in the restoration that he's working in the world? Right? We like soldiers in his army. The Bible uses another metaphor that we're called to be ambassadors to that kingdom. Let me be, be clear. We do not bring the kingdom. There's nothing we can do to force it to grow, to develop in our midst. It's the work of God, but I, I truly believe that he invites us to partner with him in this. Now, I've used this analogy before, um, so some of you might have heard it, but I, I think about this. When I think about joining in God's work, I think about it like washing a car. When I was younger, I, I don't, and the few times that I did wash our car, you know, the kids would want to help contribute to that process. But let's be clear, like, who was actually doing the work? It was me, you know? And in fact, there were times, plenty of times, where it took more time for me when they helped and participated. You know, like, I'm, I'm finished rinsing the car, and they're still, like, on that door, you know, soaping it up, right? I got to go back and rinse it again. My goal in inviting them to this was not efficiency. It wasn't how fast can I see you know, that can I get this, this task done? But I was grateful for their participation and their joy in it, right? Because when that car was finished, they were able to step back and proudly say, I helped with that. I did that. And I, as a father, relished that time that we were able to share in the task together. So I, I think that's actually a really helpful metaphor for the work of God, right? The family business that God invites us into. God is the one doing the work, and I'm sure there are plenty of times where we kind of screw it up, and it, it takes a little longer to make something happen. We can't derail God's plan, but, you know, I don't know. May, maybe we, we uh, um, make it take a little longer. God's the one doing the work, but we, we get the joy of sharing in that labor with him. So what I've hoped that we've seen this morning is that, you know, there's this picture in Ezekiel 37 of, of death and despair, that apart from God, the situation is hopeless. The question, can God bring flourishing and life to this place of death, was never the question, but will he? Will God do something about it? Will God do something about those spaces in our community and the spaces in our schools, in our workplace, in our family dynamic, whatever it might be? Both in our passage and what we see communicated through the work of Jesus Christ is a resounding yes. 
And so my hope, I want to invite us to take these truths, find ways that you can join God in his restorative work in the world. The prophet Isaiah says this, and I'll close with this line. Isaiah 58, 12. He says this, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So, a couple questions I have, and I'll post them this week as I always do on Facebook and the web, our, our website. Because I want to I help kind of prime where these spaces might be. So the first is this. Can you identify a valley of dry bones in your life? Now, can you think of a space in your vicinity that is a place of despair that feels hopeless? So kind of inventorying, identifying that. And the second is this, and I think this is, um, I I did this somewhat intentional. I'm not asking us to like pray over it yet. That'll come. But I want us to just use our imagination. I think our imagination and creativity is a gift of God. And so just think, dream, if you will. What might it look like to explore what God could do with that space? What would redemption look like? How could you imagine life coming out of that dead place? And then, pray over that space. Invite God to move and see how you can join with God to make that vision a reality. Let me pray and then we'll, we'll close uh, with one more song. Lord, as we come before your throne and your presence, we ask that you would take these places of death in our communities, uh, the the places that we are in in our networks, and that you would bring life out of them, Lord. We know that you are capable. We see that you are willing, and so we ask in faith that you would move in those spaces, and that we would be able to partner and to join with you in that. Lord, because it is only you that can, can bring life out of death, but you invite us into your work, invite us into the family business. And so, God, may you give us a vision of what that might look like. Through creativity, through innovation, may you show us places where we can help move that needle, even if it's just one iota. Lord, we know you are good, and we know that things are moving towards this this eschatological hope at the end of time, but we live in a time between where your kingdom's here, but it's not here in its fullness. And so may we continue to look and point out to others where that kingdom has manifested itself in, in our communities. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen.